following this breaking news. Good morning. Thanks for listening. It's going to be nice weather here while the really big stories on. You're listening to the Today in San Diego podcast. Let me in. Why won't you let me in? Let me in. And he was banging at the doors. I felt like the building was coming down. He's been stalking this woman um, and yelling at her and climbing her balcony to get to her. And I watched him push her up the stairs one time. I'm Alexis Rivas, an investigative reporter with NBC7 and Telemundo 20. Thanks for joining us for this special edition of the Today in San Diego podcast. For months, the NBC7 Investigates team has been digging into the killing of a Rancho Penasquitas woman. Connie Datka was found dead inside of her condo on a morning in June. The man accused of murdering her, Parrish Chambers Jr., could soon face more charges stemming from a violent incident between him and Connie two months earlier in April. During a preliminary hearing this month, the prosecutor told the judge she'd like to add a battery charge for that incident. So why didn't officers make an arrest back in April? And if they had, could it have saved Connie's life? Look, police officers want to put bad guys in jail. Anybody who's paying attention at all understands that that's happening less and less and less and officers' hands are tied. How could these injuries be so severe that police officers felt it was that important to take photographic evidence and yet not do any action after that? This was just a mistake. There were many warning signs for law enforcement that were not, I don't think the law enforcement entities who showed up knew about that. Had they, had they known, had there been better reporting and better tracking, they could have saved Connie's life. It's been more than two months since Connie Dadka was found dead inside of her condo. Investigators believe she was murdered by a man who witnesses say smashed his way in through a glass door on her balcony. Neighbors called 911 begging police for help. One of them, who doesn't want to be identified, testified in a pre-trial hearing. He was running so hard that um, my walls were shaking. Um, I, I thought maybe that the ceiling would breakthrough, even though that's illogical. That's how it was. Police arrived nearly two hours after the first call and 45 minutes after the break-in. But officers never went inside the condo that night to confront the suspect. They told us they thought the man lived there. The next morning, police found Connie's body on her couch after they say her accused killer asked a neighbor to call 911. One of the first officers on the scene that morning describes what he saw. We observed bruising around her neck. We also observed blood that was all over the couch, on the floor, and on the walls. The deputy medical examiner testified Connie likely died from a brain bleed from injuries to her head. The suspect, Parrish Chambers Jr., has pleaded not guilty to murder. Connie and Chambers weren't strangers. Neighbors say they saw him around the complex several times a week for years, often yelling and screaming and pounding on Connie's door. They say some of those incidents became violent, including one event that was captured on home security video in April of this year. And I watched him uh, push her up the stairs one time. A home security camera caught that push. 
Connie is seen trying to get away from Chambers, but he catches up and grabs at her. At one point, he shoves her so forcefully she falls forward onto the stairs out of view. About an hour later, the camera shows police officers taking photos of Connie's neck and arm. Court records show it was also a violation of Chambers' probation to have any contact with Connie. Yet, police didn't make an arrest, and the call for service states, quote, no report required. We assembled a panel of experts, showed them the video of the April incident, and asked them why they thought Chambers wasn't charged at the time. Here's our discussion. All right, I'm joined now by a panel of experts on the far end of the table. There's Dante Pride, he's a civil rights attorney. Next to him is Verna Griffin-Tabor. She's the CEO of a nonprofit agency that supports domestic violence victims and survivors. And closest to me is a retired San Diego police lieutenant, Andrew Hoffman. All of you, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for thank having you us. Having uh, Andrew, I'm gonna start with you uh, because I know you all just watched a video of this April incident you just retired, I think two years ago from San Diego police. So please try to explain for us, what are police doing in that video or what are they supposed to be doing? Well, the first video, um, pretty terrifying stuff. I mean, even, uh, um, you know, as a police lieutenant, I'm looking at it a little scared. Obviously this, this subject was uh, forcing Connie into, into her apartment against her will. And she, it seemed to me, it, it's reasonable to conclude she was terrified. To, you know, she knew she was going to be in there by herself with him, and, and he was pushing her physically. So, um, you know, officers would respond to that. For, for a casual onlooker, they might conclude that that's possibly a domestic violence situation. But in any case, um, it's obviously um, an assault of some sort. And then, uh, obviously, uh, as, as the video plays out, it becomes clear that... Um, that there were some, that there was an assault of some sort. She had some injuries. Um, uh, officers were seen taking some photographs of, of, of some injuries, although it's a little difficult to see the extent of those. So uh, they would want to look into that and find out what the nature of the relationship was, because that really dictates where they go from there. Um, whether there's a prosecution available or arrest available to them at that time. Um, obviously, it, uh, chronicling what happened and, and um, pursuing it from that from that point. This is a little bit to, to all of you then, because you said they want to understand the relationship because that dictates what happens from there. Why does that dictate what happens from there? And I'm curious for your perspectives on, on whether that should matter. I think it does matter from, from the legal standpoint, right? There has to be a relationship between the two parties prior to the violence for it to constitute a domestic violence situation. And once the situation is characterized as a domestic violence situation, then the police officers are, are able to move forward without the participation of the witness. But in a situation where it is not a domestic violence situation and it is essentially just an assault or a battery, then the police officers need to be there and be present in order to make an arrest for a misdemeanor crime. And so that kind of puts the officers in a, in a, a weird, funny space between the two. And the video that we saw looked like a response to what would have normally been a domestic violence situation. However, I think that the, the victim in that instance let the police officers know that there was no relationship between the two of them. And so I think that may have been where the, you know, the disconnect occurred and there was no follow-up there. And for a domestic violence uh, survivor to report and have the police leave if it if truly was a DV case, which it's questionable, and the officers didn't know that on the onset, and she clearly said it wasn't, 
there still could be motivation why she would say it wasn't because if they leave many times what's happened in the past and they don't um, take them away then survivors get hurt more or killed a question that keeps coming up in our newsroom is how could these injuries be so severe that police officers felt it was that important to take photographic evidence and yet not do any action after that how do you reconcile that well if i could i believe as dante was alluding to i mean literally that is a um, it's a it's a uh, a legal prohibition if the misdemeanor was not committed in the presence of the police officers they can't if that action had taken place in front of a police officer and they witnessed it they would have been able to make a misdemeanor arrest for a misdemeanor which was committed in their presence absent that one of two things has to be the case the victim herself would have to be willing to it, the term is place citizens arrest but it's that doesn't mean that she physically has to put handcuffs on the guy. What it means then is that she expresses that she's willing to make a citizen's arrest. The police officers facilitate that. The other option would have been had a witness seen that and been willing to step up and say, I want to place this person uh, under citizen's arrest for that battery, uh, which would have been, I believe, the crime in this case, depending on the seriousness of the injuries. Then an arrest could have taken place. But absent all of that, the police officer's hands are tied and all they're left with then is to be able to document what happens um, and obviously, I mean, you know, this got a lot worse. And I think in the, in the instance, in the, in the video, um, you know, I don't want to let the police off the hook all the way. I believe that they did their job, they, they showed up, and they started to investigate kind of what happened. Now, they couldn't make an arrest because nothing happened in front of them. And you can see kind of from the videos that the injuries aren't really severe injuries, and so it was probably a misdemeanor crime. However, I, my understanding is that there wasn't a report taken either. So if, if a report was taken and written, that could have been forwarded to the supervising officer, which then it could have been forwarded to the district attorney, and then a decision could have been made by the district attorney whether or not to pursue that prosecution. And had the district attorney pursued that prosecution, perhaps down the road when we had the incident that occurred um, at the end here, uh, when she was unfortunately killed, maybe that incident could have given the police more power when they came um, that second time. I'm going to have to push back a little bit on the, you know, there wasn't a witness and she wasn't willing to say there was a DV relationship because I think the question that some people might have when they watch this is well, there's this camera getting surveillance video and I've been to this unit. It is not hidden. It is standing in the windowsill right in front of where they were taking photos. So they ha officers had an opportunity to seek evidence. Does that factor into this? Is that something that they can do if the victim is not cooperating? Yes, um, and I don't want to be the one who seems to be bashing the police. I know that we have some litigation with my firm and the police, but uh, for all intents and purposes, I think police are, are great people and, and good officers generally. Um, this was just a mistake. I think uh, reasonable minds probably won't differ that these officers should have did some follow-up research. The fact that there is a camera right there that has a video of the assault occurring I think if the DA would have seen that video, they would have more power to prosecute a crime. So I think the cops should have uh, investigated and obtained that evidence. I want to go back to the victim not cooperating. Right. A lot of questions have come in about why she didn't call police herself. Why didn't she want to press charges? And I want to be careful here not to victim blame, right. but that is a huge question. So if, if you could please help us understand why that might be. Honestly, sometimes when a victim calls, and I can't speak for Connie, 
but when a victim calls and if nothing happens, it, it's like putting gasoline on a burning fire for some folks who are that agitated, who are that intent on harming. It sometimes can uh, uh, exacerbate the situation. And, and oftentimes survivors are trying to uh, determine uh, whether they should or shouldn't. Many times survivors believe they've gotten used to managing some of this. They believe they can and don't realize the situation is escalating. The domestic violence relationship, um, difficult, full of nuances. I yes. think most people, at least myself, didn't realize that there was a difference in treatment when it came to domestic violence and a non-relationship assault right. or battery. You spoke a little bit as to why legally that relationship is important. I'm curious to know, within the San Diego Police Department, what is the, the policy for assault and battery outside of the domestic violence relationship? Well, I spoke to that a, a bit. There, that's dictated to a large degree by, by the law. I mean, in, I mean, if a misdemeanor takes place outside of their presence, they didn't see it, and they don't have somebody else who did and who's willing to... to uh, to place the person under citizen's arrest. And again, that doesn't mean they're physically doing that. Then their hands are pretty much tied. Dante's correct that, that uh, if, if, the, if a crime has occurred and it's, and it's uh, documented correctly and uh, is forwarded to the city attorney or the district attorney, they can make a, a call about whether they wanted to pursue it. That does open the door to a lot of other issues that I'm, I'm a little reluctant to get into because a woman has lost her life here. And, and I, I don't want to appear to be simply an apologist for the police department, but they're there are many factors, not the least of which is that the San Diego Police Department uh, is about the same size or as small as it was over 30 years ago when, when I was you know, starting my career. And so officers are constantly making judgment calls about, uh, I've got a victim here who doesn't want to place charges, uh, press charges. I've got no witness who wants to press charges. Uh, she's, uh, they're not serious injuries. Um, and the radio is ringing in my ear right now of another assault that's going on right now. And I'm not sure that, I'm not saying that's the case here, but what I am saying is that it's a constant battle of triaging. And I can tell you absolutely that when you're hearing that in your earpiece and you're debating on whether or not you want to write a report um, or, or should write, and, and I believe in this case, a report should have, should have been written, all things being equal. But, but the truth is that it really, it pulls on you. And it's, do I want to go to that next call where something's happening right now, or do I want to sit down and write a report for an hour and a half over uh, a case where it's not domestic violence, there's no serious injuries, and I have a victim who for, for many, many legitimate reasons, some of which Verna referred to, uh, is, is, is not currently cooperating. Well, the three of you have, have mentioned, you know, issues and concerns that might have changed how this played out in this particular instance. I'm curious to know what you all think what needs to change so that this doesn't happen again? I think we have to take this as a microcosm, right? We can't, I don't want to apply this specific situation to everything, but looking at this specific situation, what I think needs to change is that if you have multiple calls for service to one location from multiple neighbors, uh, there should be a rule that contact needs to be made. Just contact. You got to stay at that door. You got to knock. You got to keep hitting pound until contact is made. Once contact is made, then you can you, you'll be able to assess the situation and decide what to do next. But when you send officers there and you tell them, hey, just knock on the door. If no one comes, it's fine. You checked. Then you're putting 
the person in the in the building in a position where they're trapped, they're stuck. She was stuck in there. She was trapped with that man and she had no way to get out. And the cops came and they left. And so I'm just outside imagining what that felt like if she could hear the cops outside. Oh, help is here, help is here. And then they just leave. I, that, that needs to change in my opinion. The decision to go in, uh, with all due respect to Dante, standing outside the door is only something you can do for so long uh, when you've got, again, you know, other calls to go to, to, go to. So that said, when I look at the totality of the, of the situation here, uh, I w I, cops are very reluctant to judge other cops when they're not on a scene. And, I'm, and, I, and everybody here has been very respectful in that regard as well. But I would want to ask more questions about why the decision was made in this case um, to leave without, without forcing entry. And that's really what we're talking about. But that opens up a whole new um, uh, problem. When you start forcing entry, and I think you and I chatted briefly, Alexis, about this, that has gone back and forth over many, many years, um, going all the way back to the McDonald's massacre in 1984, where, where officers were, were instructed to delay action as, as higher ups were responding to a scene. And that had some terrible consequences and it changed the, the direction of the way in which the San Diego Police Department handled that. But that has toggled back and forth over all the years that I was in law enforcement, where you would later have them be more aggressive and then have it turn out badly. And the question was, well, why didn't you just um, put a perimeter on the place and, and stay outside and, you know, for an indefinite period of time? And so there's are difficult decisions. I don't know what went into the minds of the officers in this situation to, to leave without making entry. Uh, I definitely think if there's any place that needs to be drilled down upon with respect to this, this tragic incident, it's, it's there. I also wonder, you know, given uh, the shortage of law enforcement, I don't know what kind of training is happening. There's something called a co uh, comprehensive victim interview, which teaches law enforcement what trauma looks like, why an interviewee may not be cooperating or not, whether it's DV or not. Um, and we're also, uh, there, in other parts of the country, there are domestic violence response teams. There's PERT, but we have limited resources for the psychiatric emergency response team. Things that augment what law enforcement is doing, because they're going into some pretty horrendous situations, and I wonder, having all the skills to manage all those situations. But there are some good practices around this country if we invest in those resources to augment what's happening. Uh, do any of you feel that there is a a, a possibility that this could be happening in, you know, other cases here in San Diego? I, I, I think so. I, I think once you learn about police work and police officers, uh, police officers kind of work in a system. And so if these officers conducted themselves in that manner, I don't want to make too far of a generalization, but generally uh, they'll conduct themselves in a similar manner at other scenes. And so that's why it's important what Andrew was saying. We, we understand and know what information they had and what information they used to make that decision because those inputs, we can change those in the future and maybe have better or different decisions. The fact they left without being, making any contact and there's a broken window, I get the logic that somebody could have broken in and you know, locked themselves out. But if you, I, I don't understand, I mean, when domestic violence survivors are, are being harmed, they're being strangled, they're being 
uh, hurt so that they're not going to answer the phone. They can't answer the door. So the hesitation or the lack of even getting in that apartment is really they may have been able to save a life. I'm sure they feel that way now as well, but that I don't understand. And if they don't know if it's a domestic violence case on the onset, um, all the more reason why you would think they might go in. I do actually have one comment, yeah. uh, in all fairness, to those who responded to, to, to that call, and I don't, I don't know them, I don't, I don't have detailed knowledge about this, but I, but I can tell you this, that, that uh, those officers' choice, the choice to not go in in that case would have not been based on uh, we're too busy, we're, we're not concerned, we're, we don't, um, if, if a decision was made to not go in, even if it was, turns out to be the wrong decision, it would have been based upon balancing the risk of forcing entry into someone's private dwelling and all of the risks that go with that. We don't know what the situation the officers didn't know what the situation was exactly, but it could well have been. Uh, I mean, everybody who's ever been in a relationship has been into an, an argument with, with their partner. Um, if that argument ended, and if this had been a domestic violence situation, and this couple went back to sleep, and the officers kick the door in, and they go in, uh, and this guy reaches to the nightstand with a firearm, mm -hmm. then they're backed into a situation where they may have to use lethal force. Where So that that's the balancing act. And, and in this case, again, I lean towards thinking they should have made en en entry in this case. But again, I don't have all the information in, in front of me. And obviously, there was a tragic ending to this. But, but if those officers chose not to go in, it wouldn't have been because they didn't take this thing seriously. Okay. Uh, it could have been a bad call, but, but it wouldn't have been a bad call based on the fact that they were too lazy or they didn't care or, uh, or anything of that nature. I don't think any of us think that. It's, it's really looking for me at what training and what access the information they had and how unfortunate it was that they didn't have the April, you know, uh, when she, they were out there to see her in April, how that could have also informed the decision. Agreed. The San Diego Police Department has stopped answering our questions about anything related to this case. Our repeated requests for an interview with Chief David Nislight have been denied. Police say talking about this case could jeopardize the ongoing murder investigation and prosecution, but we're going to keep digging for answers to your questions, and we could learn more if it's talked about in open court. The Center for Community Solutions has a 24-hour toll-free crisis line for domestic violence and sexual assault victims. That number is 888-385-4657. Again, that's 888-385-4657. You can keep up with all of our investigations and send us your tips by going to NBC7.com investigations. Thanks for joining us for this special edition of the Today in San Diego podcast. I'm Alexis Rivas. Thank you for listening to Today in San Diego. For more from our team, search NBC San Diego wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to give us your feedback by leaving a rating and review.